Blind Citizens News, November 2020. Published by Blind Citizens Australia, ABN 90-006-985-226. Blind Citizens Australia is the national representative organisation of people who are blind or vision impaired. Our mission is to inform, connect and empower Australians who are blind or vision impaired and the broader community. Copyright. Reproduction of articles appearing in Blind Citizens News is permitted, provided Blind Citizens News and the authors are acknowledged. Large print ISSN 1441449X. Braille ISSN 1441-5658. Blind Citizens Australia contact details. Ross House, Level 3, 247-251, Flinders Lane, Melbourne, Vic, 3000. Telephone 03-9654-1400. Toll free 1-800-033-660. SMS 0436-446-780. Email bca at bca.org.au. Website www.bca.org.au Facebook www.facebook.com forward slash Blind Citizens Australia Twitter at AU underscore BCA Blind Citizens News is distributed in large print, braille and audio. Electronic copies in text format are available from our webpage, on CD or by email. The audio edition is available as a podcast by searching for Blind Citizens Australia in your favourite podcast app or can be accessed via the Vision Australia Library service. Other publications, New Horizons radio program and podcast, Blind Citizens Australia annual report. Blind Citizens Australia staff, Chief Executive Officer Emma Benison. General Manager Operations, Angela Jeske. General Manager Projects and Engagement, Sally Ulrich. National Policy Officer, Jane Britt. National Advocacy Projects Officer, Ricky Chaplin. National Advocacy Officer, Martin Stewart. Manager Finance and Administration, Troy Grant. Information and Administration Officer, Samantha Marsh. Communications Assistant, Anna Briggs. Strategic Development and Partnerships, Kathy Elliott. Project Officer and CEO Executive Assistant, Naomi Barber. New South Wales slash ACT Program Officer, Jennifer Parry. National Membership Development Coordinator, Tim Haggis. Policy and Advocacy Team Leader, Diana Cube. Project Officer Initiatives, Miriam Fadala. Project Officer, Life Ready, Joe Webber. Project Intern, Peter Gordon. Table of Contents. Track 1, Opening Announcement. Track 2, 2020 BCA Elections Nomination Update. Track 3, BC News November 2020 Introduction. Track 4, This Table of Contents. Track 5, Editorial. Track 6, The Secret. Track 7, 5 Tips for Diplomatic Self-Advocacy. Track 8, Pondering the Pandemic. Track 9, We've All Been There, Experiencing Ableism. Track 10, Remembering the Class for the Partially Sighted. Track 11, Keeping Connected. Track 12, 
Feedback for BCA. Track 13, how to make a complaint about BCA. Track 14, funding and donations for BCA. Track 15, submit your writing to Blind Citizens News. Track 16, directory of contact details. Track 17, New Horizons radio broadcast schedule. Track 18, closing announcement. Editor's note, Blind Citizens Australia refers to our members as people who are blind or vision impaired. However, we respect the right of individual authors to use whatever language is most comfortable for them. Editorial by Jonathan Craig. The record slides smoothly out of its sleeve, and I catch its edges on the tips of my index fingers, so as to avoid touching the surface of either side. Most people could achieve this thoughtlessly. For me, it's something to be proud of. Carefully, I line up the hole in the centre of the disc with the spindle on the turntable and let it drop with a satisfying clunk. Next, I bring the tone arm over the record. On the end is the delicate needle, which will thread its way through the grooves and translate them into music. I carefully line up the cartridge so that the needle, theoretically, is sitting directly over the outer groove, which can be easily seen, but which I can't readily distinguish, even if I were to risk the sound quality with my fingerprints. Again, I do this without touching either the needle or the surface of the record. Using the lever, I gently lower the needle into the groove, while starting the turntable spinning with my other hand. If I've got it right, I'll hear a telltale crackle caused by tiny specks of dirt gathered on the surface of the disc despite my best efforts. Then, after a few moments, track one will burst into life. I've been building my relatively humble collection over the last few years, largely through trawling op shops with my wife or support workers. For most of that time, I've had no idea what I was about to hear when I went through that complex ceremony. Melbourne's six months of lockdown has given me a great chance to rectify that problem. Putting each record into a braille-labelled sleeve, with stickers on the inner sleeves to indicate which was the A-side. The process took hours, and my collection is relatively small. Most of the other collectors I know have found this task too enormous to consider, relying on eccentricities of the sleeves or packaging to identify their favourites. Otherwise, it's a lucky dip. I can't think of a less accessible way to enjoy music. Playing your favourite song from an LP is a matter of trial and error. Meanwhile, using streaming services, I can listen to anything I want to with a voice command. And don't forget, one side of a record only holds around 20 minutes of music. After that, I have to get up and go through the process I just described all over again. I'm not the only one embracing this outdated format.
Vinyl is generating more revenue than CDs for the first time since 1986. But apart from sound quality, much of its modern appeal is visual, and for sighted listeners, it presents far fewer challenges. It's completely nonsensical that I should volunteer for such a difficult user experience. Meanwhile, when I catch up with my friends who are blind or vision impaired, I invariably take the chance to complain about inaccessible apps and websites, knowing they'll understand. Dear reader, am I a hypocrite? I have to admit, when I first started editing this magazine, I was frustrated by the way BCA refers to its members. People who are blind or vision impaired felt like an incredibly clunky way to start a sentence. And in the middle, it was even worse. It seemed to interrupt the flow and the rhythm, asking more cognitive effort of the reader before they could enjoy the second half of my statement. Lately, I've found another way of looking at it. The familiar process of passing those words can feel kind of satisfying. It can also build up anticipation for whatever message you're about to hear. Yes, you may have to get up and turn over the sentence halfway through, but if it's a good one, side B will be worth it. We are record collectors, even though it's far more difficult for us. We are binge-watchers, even though we need a mediator to explain what's happening sometimes. Even though audiobooks and podcasts are more accessible, we are painters and photographers, sailors, sportswomen, makeup artists, dancers, gamers. People are messy and contradictory. People don't always make sense. People love what they love and they pursue their passions regardless of obstacles. We'll never stop arguing about how we should describe ourselves, and I'm eager for the debate to continue, even in the pages of this magazine, if you have strong feelings. But as I get up from my couch in my house where I've been trapped for months, I feel at peace with the paradox of this ridiculous hobby that has comforted and preoccupied me during a very strange time. I lift the disc off the turntable, again holding it carefully by the edges, and flip it over. People who are blind or vision impaired are people first. The Secret by Annette Leishman It started in my childhood. My parents brushed it off as clumsiness. I bumped into walls, doors, furniture. Outside it was worse. I bumped into signs, fell into holes and tripped over constantly. Mealtimes often ended badly because I'd spill my drink or knock something off the table and break it. At school, no one wanted me on their team because I was hopeless at ball sports. I couldn't hit them, catch them, or even chase them. Academically, I wasn't too bad, but I had to put the effort in. I did a lot of reading, 
and rereading because lots of things just didn't make sense. They don't if you miss whole sentences. The optometrist. Years later, my friend Jeanette suggested there was a reason for my clumsiness. She knew a lot about eyesight problems and worked for an optometrist. Two days later, I had an eye examination. The optometrist did the usual tests, followed by a test for colour blindness. Then he got out his special light, which allowed him to look directly into my fundus. Hmm, interesting, he commented, as his beard tickled my face. He asked my permission to be examined by the other optometrists in the firm. Rick, Jan and Tom came in to have a look and made comments like, Never seen that before. What is it? Fascinating. Unusual. Different. Then the ophthalmologist. I had to wait another two weeks for my appointment with the ophthalmologist. During that time, I lay awake at night thinking maybe the thing was going to make me blind. I checked the referral letter. Nothing there. Nothing that I could understand anyway. Perusing medical dictionaries, encyclopedias and books on eye diseases at the library filled the spare seconds during those pre-Google days. I read up on all the opias. Hemorrhalopia, nyctalopia, ambiopia, myopia, hyperopia. Nothing there. I looked a bit further. Cataracts, astigmatism, macular degeneration, glaucoma, cancer. You will go blind. Finally, ophthalmologist day arrived. After all the usual eye examinations, I had a short consultation with the ophthalmologist. He looked into the back of my eyes with his special tool. Annette, you have retinitis pigmentosa, he announced in a slow, serious voice. You will go blind, he continued. There is a grieving process, same as for cancer or any other diseases. The words disease and cancer kept flashing through my mind. The mention of cancer helped me to regain my composure and walk out of the clinic unaided. I had already experienced suffering and death in my family due to cancer. I was thankful I didn't have it. What is retinitis pigmentosa, RP? RP is a genetic disease that causes irreversible vision loss. The cells in the retina, called the photoreceptors, don't work properly, causing a gradual loss of sight. The onset of symptoms usually begins in childhood. The degeneration in the peripheral vision occurs first before gradually extending to a decline in the central visual field. Colour vision, visual acuity and night blindness are all compromised. How I felt. Angry. Scared. Alone. No one seemed to understand what I was going through. How can you explain why you can see a bird in the sky, but you can't see the pencil in front of you? By ignoring it, the thing didn't go away. But I decided to keep it to myself. It was easier than 
trying to explain to others who didn't understand, didn't care, or quickly forgot about the thing that caused me so much internal grief. In their eyes, pre- and post-diagnosis, I hadn't changed. The effect on my children. My diagnosis was very difficult for my children. I certainly was aware how my youngest felt. At the age of seven, she announced, We haven't got a father. We haven't got a grandfather. We haven't got a car. And you're not blind. And she sobbed. It was heartbreaking. I felt their grief too. And on top of that, the guilt. As a single parent of three little ones, my children had to pick up the pieces after each low vision episode. The broken bones, the bruises, sprained ankles, stabbed foot, the head injury, the broken teeth, the injuries that were caused by walking into the space at the top of a staircase twice, knocking a knife off a bench, walking into walls, potholes, signs, missing the bottom step on a bus, falling over a giant rock, a small piece of concrete, headbutting an invisible steel gate. Being secretive was ruining my life. It took another 20 plus years before suddenly I didn't want to do low vision by myself anymore. Being secretive about RP was doing me more harm than the disease itself. I thought if I kept it a secret, I would be exempt from discrimination. But I experienced discrimination anyway. My first experience of workplace harassment was directly attributed to my unique qualities that are intrinsic to RP. Another incident occurred where I was transferred against my will to a work site that had no suitable access to public transport, although it was common knowledge that I didn't have a driver's licence. Eventually, the workplace became unbearable, so I made a complaint to the Industrial Relations Commission. I was unable to attend the hearing because the events leading up to the report had caused my general health to deteriorate. After that, I never went back to work in my home state of Tasmania again. Instead, I moved to Melbourne. So this is me. I have RP. I joined an online RP support group. Sitting through hundreds of posts was like reading about me. Firstly, how difficult it was for unexceptional people to comprehend vision loss that compromised daily functioning. Secondly, the stages between low vision and blindness present enormous challenges that are often misunderstood in the mainstream. Consequently, individuals experiencing low vision often encounter social exclusion, discrimination and hostility. Suddenly, I wanted to create awareness and attitudinal change towards people with low vision. Inspiration for a Churchill Fellowship Early in 2018, I applied for a Churchill Fellowship to investigate the challenges of low vision in order to promote a more inclusive society. A Churchill Fellowship enables successful applicants to go overseas to research a topic that they are passionate about and that they have already researched exhaustively at home.
the field of research must be beneficial to Australians. My research included written surveys, interviews, reading research articles and creating questionnaires online. I joined a Vision Australia support group, a telelink group for people with low vision, and Blind Citizens Australia, BCA. My research showed that individuals with low vision feel they are misunderstood. Depression due to negative public perception is common. My aspiration was to promote attitudinal change by raising awareness through education with the result that all people with low vision will feel supported and connected. I did get an interview but didn't receive a fellowship. After months of preparation and research, followed by the high-pressured interview, I didn't want to abandon my goal. Accepting and creating opportunities to write and talk about my topic enables me to continue what I set out to do, create awareness about low vision, in particular RP. The blog. I also started a blog during the pandemic, initially as a diary for my baby grandchildren as well as stories based on the latest news and personal stories i have been using the platform to write some articles about vision loss so i guess my secret's definitely out now editor's note annette leishman's blog can be found at www.trueblissability.com.au 5 tips for diplomatic self advocacy by ricky chaplin we all experience those situations where it seems we bang our heads against the proverbial brick wall and still we are confronted with a complete lack of recognition or acknowledgement of previous conversations we have had in which we thought our advocacy had been successful. As advocacy staff, it's very common to hear from people who have been in long-running negotiations with companies, government agencies and the like, only to have to start from scratch as new staff are brought on board or policies and procedures change. Yet if we give up when these frustrations repeatedly occur, our efforts are thwarted Things will go on in the way they always have, and nobody benefits. Even for a professional advocate, this can get very difficult to remember. It's easy to become disillusioned, and that sense of futility can manifest in a couple of ways. Either we can walk away, or we can start communicating with the stakeholders concerned in ways that are not going to get us the results we need in the long term. So, how do we deal with these legitimate frustrations while channeling our energy into communicating in the most productive manner? Here are some strategies you could use to vent that frustration and become more strategic in your advocacy efforts. 1. Confide in a friend or trusted confidant. There's nothing more fun at times than getting together with a good friend or someone you know you can trust in understanding your intentions, 
having a good laugh and saying all the things you'd like to say, but which you know would be counterproductive. Note that sharing these frustrations on social media is seldom a good idea. As valid as they are, you can leave yourself open to unwanted criticism if you share your thoughts in public forums. Believe me, I've learned the hard way. Rather, confide in someone you know will respect your need to express your frustrations privately and deal with them in an environment that's safe and which poses no risk to your reputation. 2. Write it down. There are times when you might not be able to confide in anyone or when your trusted confidant is not available right when your frustrations are at their peak. Writing apps, whichever one you choose, are a good replacement in these circumstances. It can be as simple as notepad on a laptop or your favourite note-taking device or indeed your phone with the appropriate app. The key thing to consider here is the avoidance of using a platform where your thoughts can be accidentally sent to anyone. Hence, avoid email programs or messaging apps. Accidents happen despite our best intentions, so if they can be prevented, all the better. Again, I've learned from bitter experience about the need for this consideration. 3. Seek advice. As well as venting our frustration, we need to acknowledge that we can be at a loss to determine what the next steps or strategy should be. In advocacy, you are never alone. It is important to understand that others will be experiencing your issue and to know that there is help available to you. You may know a friend, confidant or mentor to whom you can turn. BCA staff are always here to help, as well as our vast membership. It's important that people advocate for themselves. But there are times when we all need some good advice from people who have been in our position before or assistance from someone who can add their authority and organisation to your efforts. 4. If it's getting too stressful, seek assistance. There are times when we become so frustrated or stressed that it becomes impossible to think through the situation rationally. If this happens for you, it may be time to enlist someone independent, such as a BCA staff member, for help. It is not a failure on your part if you've done all you can within your own resources and you haven't achieved the result you are seeking. An independent advocate can approach the issue with no emotional involvement, as they are removed from the situation at a personal level. This can be beneficial, particularly in situations where an issue is being mediated by a body such as the Australian Human Rights Commission or the state equivalent. 5. Except some issues are too big for one person. In many cases, the issues we all face are systemic in nature. They are not things which one person's advocacy efforts will resolve. 
Our collective input, however, combined with BCA's authority as a peak advocacy body, is more likely to get the results we all want in the long run. There are smaller wins you may be able to enjoy, however. Even though they will not solve the entire issue, they may benefit you in the short term. They may not always occur, but sometimes focusing on smaller victories can take the pressure off us as individuals to solve the problem that's causing us constant frustration. Unfortunately, I've learned from my experience and those of others who have sought assistance from BCA that we can never regard an issue as being permanently resolved. Staff and processes change and documents such as inclusion or equity and diversity policies are not necessarily representative of what happens in real life. Perhaps if we accept this, we will not become so exhausted when we need to reinvest in issues we thought were dealt with. Even if this is the case, it highlights the ongoing need for advocacy and the fact that our purpose as the peak advocacy body representing Australians who are blind or vision impaired remains vital. As professional advocates, we have had many victories, both individually and collectively. Those victories were built on effective communication, diplomacy and patience. There is a fine balance between maintaining high-quality relationships and highlighting ignorance, inaccessibility and discrimination. In most cases, however, it is the maintenance of good relationships that brings about the best results. Pondering the Pandemic by Jane Britt Editor's Note I've been enjoying the staff profiles in our recent member updates. They're a great opportunity to get to know the people working on our behalf. Our policy officer, Jane Britt, here offers a glimpse into her life and the unique ways she found to cope with lockdown. This is a great reminder of how similar and yet probably different all of our experiences have been. We toasted to a new year, carrying the hopes of a nation that the fires and drought holding our country siege would abate. Who knew that just months later not only would Australia be grappling with their aftermath, but also trying to find a semblance of normal life, an increasingly difficult prospect in a pandemic. Striving to find that new normal also became a personal concern for me. On Friday, March 20, I left the house for a final time before going into voluntary isolation. I visited my equestrian centre for my last riding lesson. My horse, Mary, intuitively sensed something was amiss and placed her head against my chest in a parting embrace at the end of the lesson. At that point, my state of Queensland had 221 COVID-19 cases. Life ground to a halt. On March 19, Australia banned all arrivals into the country except for residents. National restrictions commenced on March 22, with Queensland shutting down non-essential services the next day. 
These restrictions continued to tighten over the following weeks, forcing people to stay and work at home. Locked down. I was fortunate that I was already working remotely. The major challenges were being disconnected from family and friends. I am deafblind and my family is located in northern New South Wales. When the Queensland border closed on March 25th, I felt truly bereft at having my primary support cut off from me. I was grateful one's compassionate entry was eventually reinstated, enabling my mum to continue to travel to me occasionally. My weekly activities all halted. These included horse lessons on Friday mornings and park run, a free five-kilometre walk or run on Saturdays. My monthly activities included book club, pub choir outings, author talks and public science lectures. Finally, my regular lunch and coffee gatherings with friends had all been cancelled. Living by myself, I felt truly alone. Finding a new normal. Two major issues were facing me. The first was rising anxiety due to being disconnected from my support network. The second was the physical change put into place at supermarkets, pharmacies and medical centres to facilitate social distancing measures. I found myself frequently charging into barriers and barricades with my white cane. I was fearful that I was unable to appropriately social distance due to a narrow visual field. I stopped going out altogether. I realised quickly that I needed to fill the void of my usual social connections. First, I found Couch Choir, the digital version of Pub Choir. Astrid Jorgensen, our conductor, published three videos of three parts for They Long To Be Close To You. I submitted a soprano video without realising that thousands of other people would do the same. The resulting compilation video has had over 3 million views. It made me cry when I first listened, realising that I was far from alone. From there, I discovered Viral Choir, an offshoot of two choirs, Soul Choir in Cairns and Brisbane. The choir rehearses two nights a week, with recordings submitted on weekends. It is a fun, vibrant community of like-minded folks. Finally, a small group of friends and colleagues formed an informal trivia night on Friday nights. I am not fabulous at trivia, but nonetheless, I have doggedly shown up for laughter-filled nights. I even held my own birthday celebration by Zoom a couple of months into the isolation period. The first time I saw our gardener outside, when I was isolating, I dashed to the glass door to wave at him. In an age where we are increasingly turning away from face-to-face interactions in favour of digital platforms, the pandemic has reminded us that they are no replacement for human interaction. My first meal with my mum, sitting down in a cafe, was truly relished. After weeks in isolation, including exchanging stories with people at the neighbouring table about their pandemic experience.
in witnessing families being torn apart by COVID-19, I have learnt that all we have is what is in front of us right now, to cherish the connections we have and the people we love. We've all been there, experiencing ableism by Fiona Woods. We've all been there, or somewhere like it. You are sitting in a cafe and the people at the table next to you start talking. You should have seen Davo. Mate, he was so blind he couldn't find the door. When you leave soon after, you wonder if they will notice you are holding a white cane. What's more, you are trying to slip away in case they do somehow become embarrassed. Another day, you are at a junior football match. What's wrong with you, umpire? Are you blind? This, although they have sat next to you now for several seasons and realised that you, the only blind person they have ever met, are not totally incompetent. Then you start to reflect that all this time they have been observing you, interacting with your children, pretending you can follow what's happening in the game. And they have found you out. Perhaps you are totally incompetent. Ableism is discrimination and social prejudice against people with disabilities. It characterises people as defined by their disabilities and as inferior to the non-disabled. These are examples of ableism. Perhaps they will seem trifling to you, not worth making a fuss about or getting upset about. You may not find these words or sayings at all offensive. You may even use them yourself. But to me and many other people who are blind or vision impaired, they are hurtful and the attitudes that underlie them damaging. First, these statements tell me that I'm laughable, incapable of sound judgment and not deserving of respect. Secondly, they reflect assumptions about our abilities. They inform decisions or conclusions people will reach when a person who is blind applies for a job or if their son brings home a blind girlfriend or if they themselves later lose their sight. Here is a more blatant example. I recently visited an ophthalmologist with my son. They suggested that my children might like to consult a genetics counsellor in the future as our eye condition is hereditary. They said that if my children were considering IVF, they might as well choose the ones that don't have the gene. I absolutely agree that genetic counselling could be helpful and that prospective parents have the right to avoid passing on unwanted characteristics, such as cancer. What shocked me was the casual way the ophthalmologist proposed that my son and I might as well not have been selected. There was no intention to make us feel invalid. But this medical professional, who must deal with patients living with genetic conditions on a daily basis, hadn't questioned these assumptions about the value of our lives as compared to those people without disability. Ableism can lead to derogatory terms being linked to people with particular conditions. A quick search for idioms, including the word blind, produced the following sayings. 
having a blind spot, being blindsided, flying blind, as blind as a bat, blind leading the blind, to rob one blind, blind Freddy, swear blind, turn a blind eye too. All of these sayings equate blindness with ignorance and a lack of ability to judge or even to know what is going on. Paradoxically, love and justice are also often depicted as blind. My personal bugbear is eye-opener, as in, that's a real eye-opener. This seems to have replaced the light bulb moment, which could be experienced by anyone. When the electricity was switched on, or when the particular neuron was stimulated in the brain. Blind people, however, can never have their eyes opened, nor will they ever be enlightened. I grew up knowing nothing about ableism, although I learned about sexism and racism from school, the media and the entertainment industry, often by observing it in practice. At my mainstream school, I was discouraged from using a cane, as it would draw attention to me. Apparently, me whacking my Perkins brailler into other girls' legs and using a sighted guide around the school did not do this. Until my 20s, I would have told you that I had never experienced discrimination. A friend at university asked me how many job offers I had had from big law firms. I said I had had three interviews and one offer. I had disclosed my blindness in my applications. My friend said that was outrageous and that I should have had multiple offers. My response was not outrage and a quest for redress, but the certainty that my friend must have misinterpreted my marks and overestimated my abilities. Soon after this, I began to teach myself about the history of blindness activism, mostly as it evolved in the USA. I started to ask myself why I was so often treated differently. Why had it been considered appropriate to play blind man's bluff at parties I had attended as a child? Why should it be so remarkable that there were three blind mice? And why were there so many jokes about blind men? I joined BCA and started to learn about systemic advocacy. Blind people, or at least the members of BCA I have encountered, do not speak about ableism much. If the discriminatory mindset is discussed at all, it is likely to be in the context of totally blind people discriminating against those who are vision impaired, or people growing up blind compared with those who lost their sight later in life. In the broader disability community, however, discussions about ableism are prevalent and vehement. About three years ago, I decided to join Facebook. I started to follow several disability advocates. Some of the posts and articles I have read since have helped me to understand and interpret attitudes and language which have made me feel diminished for so long. Ableism has its own academic discourse. There are many others, hopefully among my readers, who are better qualified to discuss its history and concepts. However, each of us, as a person with a disability, knows the sounds and feelings of ableism. 
Each of you has experienced it, although you may not recognise it as such. You're at a dinner party and one of the other guests says to you, I was wondering when you were going to get that on your fork. Your cousin, who has known you all his life, posts that blind Freddy would have known that would happen. A colleague says that they would rather take out their eyeballs and soak them in acid than attend another Zoom meeting. All of these things have happened to me this year. I have been planning to write an article on the topic of ableism for some time. I have finally been compelled to do so by Chrissy Brinkat's article, The Stranger on the Bus, which appeared in the April 2020 edition of Blind Citizens News. Chrissy is perfectly entitled to respond to any stranger as she wishes, and I thank her for writing the article and giving us all something to think about. Depending on how any of us were feeling that day, some of us might refuse to answer. Many of us would choose the path of least resistance and give some monosyllabic replies. We wouldn't even dream of lying. Like Chrissy, many of us would think good manners required us to answer politely, perhaps even more so if we were women. But if we acknowledge ableism, we might ask, what gives the stranger the right to ask such questions? Would you ask questions about medical history and life circumstances of a sighted person you sat next to? How dare you judge the blind person for how they answer? How many of us would confront the inquisitor with their ableist attitude? BCA has a proud history of bringing about change for Australians who are blind or vision impaired. Check out the website for 40 Years of Achievement or Jonathan Craig's article The 25-Year Battle for TV for All in the July 2020 edition of Blind Citizens News. BCA has won its reputation because its constitution requires it, among other things, to promote positive community attitudes. We approach governments, the media, service providers and the community with a willingness to consult and collaborate. It's hard to make progress by alienating people and accusing them of prejudices they don't know they have. On the other hand, major change is rarely brought about because someone asked nicely. The Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements and the Disability Royal Commission demonstrate that. As a director of BCA, I am bound to preserve its hard-won position of balance and respect. Last year, I was chided for using the phrase, maintain the rage. I regret any implication that I accept violence as legitimate or normal. The fact remains, though, that what motivates me and possibly some of the many other BCA volunteers is a small, bitter flame of anger for the way people who are blind or vision impaired are treated and spoken about, and the way that makes us feel about ourselves. When any acquaintance or stranger I meet feels entitled to satisfy their curiosity by asking me endless questions about my life, they tell me that people like me are childlike and a fit subject for the entertainment of others. They leave me with the problem of how to react. 
If I say I feel they are being rude or insensitive, they will tell me that I have taken it the wrong way and that they meant no offence. They might tell me to quit taking myself so seriously and just get over it. People who know me might pay me the ultimate compliment of saying I'm so good they forgot I am blind. All of the words and phrases I mentioned earlier characterise blindness as failure and other weaknesses. Many of you do not object to these terms. Many of you will think it is going too far to construe them as ableist. They are only words. When I was growing up, there were girl colours and boy colours. There were headmasters and headmistresses, though not as many of the latter. Policemen and policewomen, names reserved for black dogs. People complained it was a lot of fuss about nothing when they were asked to change. But the world has not stopped because we did. No one is injured if we call the leader of a school the principal, or if we find a new name for our tasty cheese. We should do what we can to use words which do not marginalise anyone. In acknowledging the hidden meanings in our words and choosing more carefully, we have made further inclusion possible. If we talk about flight attendants and fireys, we can include not only men and women, but also people who do not identify with a particular gender. BCA is gradually updating its publications to ensure, as far as possible, that our language does not intentionally exclude anyone. I think it is time people who are blind or vision impaired started to expect the same respect from the rest of the community. If we start to educate people, we can all join together to change the way they speak and therefore think about us. I am not saying we should treat sighted people as the enemy. I imagine most of you, like me, have sighted friends and family whose love and support are essential to us. We don't want them to feel nervous or frightened. They will upset us every time they open their mouths. But why should their feelings be more important than mine? I recently explained to some friends how the phrase eye-opener makes me feel. One person could not see my problem. Another said they have never thought about it that way. But at any rate, it was in common practice. Another said she was sorry not to have realised how insensitive it was and that she would try not to use it again, not just in my presence, but at all. If people can abandon words and phrases that equate lack of sight with lack of capacity, perhaps they will start to consider us as employees, family members, friends and equal participants in society. I'm not saying I want BCA to throw away years of hard work and suddenly become some student campaigner for politically correct language. I believe there is a place in it for members who want to identify and discuss ableist language, behaviour and attitudes. We have recently had discussions about the ways in which our blindness or vision impairment can impact our mental health and about how we 
can be affected by the judgments of other people in our community. I believe BCA is mature enough to conduct a nuanced investigation of ableism as it affects people who are blind or vision impaired. The next time someone uses a phrase that makes you feel uncomfortable or starts asking you questions you feel they would not ask a sighted person, ask yourself whether the squirmish reaction that you are feeling is because of your own inadequacies or because of the other person's belief that able-bodied people are superior. Unfortunately, many of us have been treated this way so often, we believe that's actually true. We may have internalised the ableism, and it can take years of hard psychological work to reach a place where we truly feel, rather than just say, that we are as good as anyone else. When someone else's actions make you feel that you are not, try challenging them about their attitudes. This can be exhausting and unrewarding. Even if you decide to say nothing, whether because you do not like confrontation or because today is just not the right day for you, acknowledge to yourself that you are experiencing ableism and that you are entitled to feel the way you feel about it. You might feel hurt, ashamed, rejected, angry, and there is nothing wrong with that. If we persist in making it our role to put the non-disabled person at ease, we also have to persist in telling ourselves that we would only deserve to be treated with respect if we were a better blind person, or not blind at all. The result is that our voice is silenced. I believe that if we are more honest about how ableism makes us feel, If we identify and describe it for each other, we will grow in our ability to confront it and hopefully reduce its impact on all of our lives. Remembering the Class for the Partially Sighted by Bruce C. Gillies In 1941, the Victorian Education Department set up the first special class for students who were partially sighted at the Princess Hill Infant School in Carlton North, an inner suburb of Melbourne, sometimes known as the Sight School class. It opened similarly to many small rural schools, with grades 1 to 8 being taught the same curriculum as in other state schools, in one room with a single teacher. PCA President John Simpson AM and I both commenced our education in this special class in 1953 with about 10 other students. Those attending the class had varying degrees of vision impairment and were not taught Braille. Miss Lydia Chikuchi, the longest-serving teacher and considered to be the backbone of the special class, was not adequately trained or supplied with much in the way of equipment, especially reading material. As there were very few large print books available to read, teachers often read books to the entire class. In time, the education department took steps to offer equipment that would reduce the strain on students' sight. Desks with sloping tops were provided so that students would not need to 
spend when reading or writing. In 1957, the department introduced several other changes to assist the students. These included various types of magnifying devices and the purchase of what was referred to at the time as a reading machine. This device was the forerunner of closed-circuit television magnifiers. Although students had lessons at their grade level, on many occasions all students would be involved together in discussions, lessons, and projects. Plus, the entire class listened to radio broadcasts from the ABC. Despite staff efforts to integrate the students into the normal fabric of the school by including them in the morning assemblies and after activities, during recess the students tended to remain by themselves, as most were older and bigger than the other students, and were sometimes referred to as the blindies. This class remained at the Princess Hill School until 1961, when it moved to the suburb of Kew as a special school known as Karen Bank. In late 2018, I contacted the Princess Hill Primary School to inquire if the school was prepared to have some type of a display to commemorate this special class, as it is part of the school's history. The school council decided that a small hardcover booklet could be produced and kept in the school library. I prepared a document of eleven pages of text using information from a chapter of a book I have been writing about my own life. The chapter and the document I sent to the school included a segment about the class for the partially sighted, taken from a book. Published in 1989 as part of the Princess Hill School's centenary celebrations, two copies of the booklet were produced: one for the school library and one for me. The booklet has white text printed on black paper. There are also 14 class photos included in the document. Ex-students of the class or of the Karen Bank School and other BCA members may like to read a copy of this brief history of the class. The special class is an important part of the history of educating blind and low vision students in Victoria and Australia. The school council of the Princess Hill Primary School and the author of the book. Prinny Hill, Nicholas Vlajnas, both support the information contained in the document being made available to BCA members. I can provide as an email attachment either a text-only copy of the booklet or text with the photos included. If any BCA member is interested in this history, please send an email to me at brucegillies at gmail dot com. That's Bruce B R U C E C G I L L I E S at gmail dot com, and I will then send you a copy. Keeping connected by Janine Sadu, President, National Women's Branch. While some regular activities outside of home have not been taking place for members this year, our National Women's Branch has focused on keeping connected with our branch members. Regular phone chats. These include gardening on the first Monday of the month, general chats on some other Mondays, 
Word Wednesday, where we have weekly fun with word games, and chats for grandparents on Thursdays. Book Club. This takes place in the evening on the fourth Wednesday of each month, with various members choosing book titles, then leading the discussion about them. Thank you to everybody who has led thought-provoking discussions and participated in our new book club. If you like reading, NWB members are very welcome to join in. Aspiration magazine. Our most recent edition had a recreation theme with interesting reading about activities our members like to spend their time doing. The theme for the next issue will be connections. Women talks teleconferences. Our July women talks, for example, looked at new products in the shops and online, and was a wealth of information. Women talks takes place in the evening on the last Thursday of alternate months. New partnership. Our NWB has partnered with Blind Sports and Recreation Victoria to offer our members a fitness program that can be done at home via phone. Please get in contact if you would like further information. Email lists. Our two email lists continue to keep friendships strong, disseminate information, and offer advice when asked for, and welcome new members. If you are on email and wish to become more involved in our branch, joining the Women Talk list is a great place to start. We were also in attendance at BCA Connect in October, hosting an opportunity to chat after the main proceedings of the day. We have welcomed some new members to the National Women's Branch in recent months, and hope that everyone enjoys what our branch has to offer. Please get in touch if you would like further details about any of our activities, and please reach out to us if you feel that some peer support would be helpful to you in these unusual times. National Women's Branch AGM. Finally, just please note that our AGM will be held on Saturday, twenty-one November, via telephone. Save the date. More details coming soon. Contact Janine Sadu via the BCA office on one eight hundred o double three double six o. Email nwb at bca dot org dot au. Feedback for BCA. Do you have any compliments, suggestions, or concerns you wanted to let BCA know about? You can do this anonymously by going to our website bca.org.au/feedback and completing a feedback form, or you can call the BCA office toll-free on one eight hundred o double three double six o. Your feedback will be used to improve our services to better meet the needs of our membership. How to make a complaint about BCA? Any member, client, or volunteer, or their advocate can lodge a complaint about the services provided by BCA. Complaints can be made in the following ways: phone one eight hundred o double three double six o, email bca at bca dot org dot au, website bca dot org dot au forward slash feedback. Post Blind Citizens Australia, Level Three, Ross House, 
247 to 251 Flinders Lane, Melbourne, Vic, 3000. If there are complaints of a serious nature, the Chief Executive Officer will ask that the complaint be put in writing. Complaints will be recorded in accordance with the requirements for complaints management outlined by the Office of Disability Services Commissioner. Member and client privacy will be respected and protected in relation to the recording, management and resolution of the complaint. For a full copy of BCA's complaints policy, please go to our website bca.org.au forward slash feedback or call the office. Funding and donations for BCA. BCA would like to acknowledge the generous work of the Geoffrey Blythe Foundation. The foundation was formed in 1995, with BCA being the primary beneficiary. We would also like to acknowledge our funding partners, the National Disability Insurance Agency, NDIA, the Department of Health and Human Services, DHHS Victoria, the Department of Social Services, Vision Australia, the Australian Federation of Disability Organisations, Guide Dogs Victoria, Guide Dogs Queensland, Guide Dogs New South Wales, Visibility Inc and our generous members. If you would like to make a donation to Blind Citizens Australia, you can call 1-800-033-660 and use your credit card. You can also donate online using the Donate tab on the BCA website. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. Submit your writing to Blind Citizens News. The editor welcomes your submissions for Blind Citizens News. Submissions for the next edition close on Friday the 11th of December 2020. Contributions can be submitted in Braille, print, audio, CD or electronic format in Word in Arial 16 font. Send emails to bca at bca.org.au and write Blind Citizens News submission in the subject line. For all other format contributions, please send the document to the BCA office. Submissions should be between 500 and 1,200 words in length. Submissions cannot be made anonymously and the editor must be made aware of any conflict of interest which may be relevant to the author's work. Directory of contact details. To find out more about BCA's next steps with audio description, visit bca.org.au slash ad on TV. Recorded information regarding scheduled programs containing AD are available via BCA's telephone system, which can be accessed by calling us on 1800 033 Further information on the Eye to the Future of Employment project, contact Naomi Barber. Email naomi.barber at bca.org.au. Naomi is n-a-o-m-i dot b-a-r-b-e-r at b-c-a dot org dot a-u. National Women's Branch, including Women Talks. Contact Janine Sadu. Email n-w-b at b-c-a dot o-r-g dot a-u. National Women's Branch, Aspirations Magazine. Contact Carmel Jolly. Email Carmel Jolly, that's C-A-R-M-E-L-J-O-L-L-E-Y at bigpond.com.
National Policy Council. Contact Fiona Woods. Email npc at bca.org.au. New South Wales slash ACT State Division. Contact Graham Innes. Email graeme, that's G-R-A-E-M-E, at grahaminnes.com. That's G-R-A-E-M-E-I-N-N-E-S dot C-O-M. NDIS slash NDIA. Phone 1-800-800-110. My Aged Care Contact Centre. Phone 1-800-200-422. Information about co-payments for home care packages. To find out how much you might be required to contribute, contact the Department of Fees and Charges within the Department of Human Services, Centrelink on 1800 227 475. New Horizons Radio Broadcast Schedule, South Australia, Adelaide 5RPH 1197am and on RPH Adelaide Digital, times 9.15pm Wednesday, repeated 6pm Friday. Queensland, Brisbane 4 RPH, 12.96am. Times 2pm Thursday, repeated 7.30am Sunday. New South Wales and ACT, Sydney 2 RPH, 12.24am. Sydney East, 100.5FM. Newcastle slash Lower Hunter, 100.5FM. Times 3pm Thursday, repeated Saturday 2pm, no Saturday repeat for Newcastle slash Lower Hunter. Canberra, 1RPH, 11.25am, times Tuesday, 9.15am, repeated 8pm. Juni, 99.5, times this is a relay of 1RPH. Tasmania, Hobart Print Radio, Tasmania, 8.64am. Launceston, 106.9fm. Devonport, 96.1fm. Week 1, Times 8:45 p.m. Wednesday, repeated 6:45 Thursday. Week two, times 6:15 p.m. Saturday. Victoria, Melbourne, 3 RPH 11:79 a.m. and Vision Australia Radio Regional Stations, RPH Albury 101.7 FM, RPH Bendigo 88.7 FM, RPH Geelong 99.5 FM, RPH Mildura 107.5 FM, RPH Shepparton 100.1 FM, RPH Warrigal 93.5 FM, RPH Warrnambool 882 AM. Times 4.30pm Wednesday, repeated 6.30pm Sunday. Western Australia, Perth, 6RPH, 990am. Times 4.30pm Wednesday, repeated 6.30pm Sundays. You have been listening to Blind Citizens News for November 2020. This audio recording was produced, edited and narrated by Glenn Morrow of Glenn Morrow Consulting Services. Find out more at glennmorrow.net. Thanks for listening.